we'll be in Judges 6 and 7 tonight, and it's a story that I am pretty certain you are familiar with, and we'll talk through some of that. Um, thinking about this story, I was just thinking about how, I don't know about you, I think most Americans root for underdogs. I, I certainly do. I mean, if I don't have a, a team in the tournament or dog in the hunt, then I'm rooting for the the scrawny one, you know, I'm the, the, the underdog, the, uh, when the, the, the dark horse, uh, the runt of the litter kind of thing. And like in the World Cup when Brazil got knocked out and I was very sad, then I started picking whoever the underdog was in the next game, rooting for the small team. And that's just kind of the way I'm wired. And interesting, this is side note, so probably should leave it out, but I'll say it. I, Brazil was a little different. Like their culture, they don't root for the underdog like we do. I just found that interesting. Like, if you don't have a team, then you're going to root. No, they like to see the, the, the big team win, you know? So I don't know. So maybe it's a cultural thing. But many of our stories in Western literature uh, seize on that and uh, are the underdog story in one version or another. And one of those, and I know not everybody gets this and nobody, not everybody loves this. And uh, don't tell me if you don't like this because I probably will hold a grudge. I'm just going to say that. Like, just don't tell me if you don't like the Lord of the Rings. I don't want to know because I love the Lord of the Rings, but I know not everybody gets it. But in the story uh, that Tolkien tells, which, by the way, he is presenting a Christian allegory in this story. Uh, most of his work, Tolkien at Oxford, most of his work was, was Christian-themed with uh, other kind of casing over it. So you didn't exactly, you couldn't tell that if you weren't an insider but his Lord of the Rings series was certainly a Christian-themed story with a Christ figure whose name was Frodo in the stories. Uh, so the world is being overwhelmed by evil, and the forces of evil seem to be growing exponentially as the story goes. And the fate of the entire world depends on this, this halfling, so really a runt of the litter, from this really provincial place in the middle of nowhere that no one's ever heard of called the Shire. And so this hobbit uh, is supposed to destroy this ring and put things back in order, and it looks impossible. And so I've just got a little dialogue from that movie, so if you will uh, just indulge me a little bit as he leaves his comfortable little world and embarks on this impossible adventure... Um, he runs into this other main character, a, a royal knight named Aragorn, a true warrior. And Aragorn, who is in line to potentially be king someday, um, has a very sober mind, very clear eyes in terms of what Frodo is up against. And so you have this dialogue. Frodo at one point um, appears to be pretty shaken, and Aragorn says to him, are you frightened? And Frodo says, yes. <laughs> and Aragorn then replies to him, not nearly frightened enough. I know what haunts you. He knows what he's up against, and he wants him to be aware of that. And so the odds are still long, and this journey goes on. And then a little further on down the quest, Frodo runs into this elf queen named Galadriel. And Galadriel... Um, listens to him as he shares his doubts and his fears um, with this hauntingly beautiful queen. And he tells her, I cannot do this alone. 
She says, you are a ring bearer, Frodo. To bear a ring of power is to be alone. Frodo said, I know what I must do. It's just that I'm afraid to do it. And then she gazed into his eyes and she said, even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Even the smallest person can change the course of the future. And Frodo does that, spoiler alert. He destroys the ring and puts things right, and Aragorn takes the throne. The Apostle Paul once wrote about this underdog story, which is very much a story that I think God has woven into the fabric of his story throughout history. And Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. He says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise things. Okay, God chose the foolish things to, cho- to shame the wise things. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Our God is a God who loves the underdog and who loves to use the underdog to do important things. And in the end, when that happens, God receives the glory for that. And perhaps we're drawn to the story because we do have that imprint on our souls that God loves to use the unlikely individual in the impossible situation. And you see that over and over throughout the pages of Scripture. So here we go to Judges chapter 6. And we have one of the Bible's great underdog stories tonight. Israel is, uh, at this point in time, is in an existential crisis. They could easily just be disappear from the pages of history like so many uh, ancient tribal cultures of the day did. They could disappear from the history of the world because this greater power, Midian, is not only threatening them, Midian is in full control. Midian is, is running things. Uh, whenever there's a harvest, uh, whenever Israel has some kind of good fortune, they are the bully on the block. They will, okay, they'll come in, they'll take it. So Israel is in a, is in a pattern now of hiding things, of burying things. They just don't want Midian to ever see if they have something good because Midian will come in and take it. They are losing property. They are losing people to this bully of that part of the ancient world. And so we have this kind of layout here in Judges chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. It says, They, Midian, they came up with their, uh, with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count their men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So imagine that. I mean, you work so hard planting and toiling and cultivating and raising your sheep and taking care of your crops. And there they are. And then, boom, they're gone. Like locusts come in and just ravage a field of grain. That's what was going on, impoverishing Israel. And so we see, by the way, 
just, yeah, we've seen this over and over. This is the story of Judges, all right? Um, Israel is doing well, then they drift. We talked about that this morning. They drift out of alignment. They, they basically end up turning their back on God. They still would say they believe on God. They would still do some of the worship practices and everything, but they're also worshiping some other gods as well, falling into idolatry and not taking God as seriously or putting him in first place in their lives. And so God sends a discipliner, an oppressor, and in this case it's Midian. We've already seen several other groups rise up to discipline um, Israel. Eventually, usually after a period of years, Israel is so battered and bruised that they cry out to God for help, and then God sends a judge or a savior or a hero into the story to rescue Israel. That's what happens, and then all things are set right for maybe 20, 30, 40 years, and then boom, they drift back into idolatry. So the Lord this time hears their prayers, rescue us from Midian. He hears their prayers. He raises up a deliverer. It's a guy named Gideon. And Gideon, when he comes onto the scene of the Bible, does not look much like a savior. Does not look much like a hero. He's a little more Frodo and a little less Aragorn, okay? Um, So last week we talked about Deborah. Deborah did look like a hero. I mean, she was heroic. When, When she comes onto the scene, unlike the other judges in the book of Judges, she is already leading. She is already ruling. She is already respected by everybody. Gideon more fits the mold of the typical judge in Israel who just kind of no one really recognized him as a leader at all, and all of a sudden, God raises him up. So, we meet him in Judges 6, and <laughs> aptly enough, Gideon, when we meet him, is in hiding, all right? He is fearful, and he is undercover trying to protect himself. Uh, he is threshing wheat, which is a totally normal thing to do in ancient Israel, but he is not threshing wheat where people always threshed wheat on top of a mountain or on a, uh, or on a top of a hill or on a hillside out in the open where you could get some breeze and you could easily throw the wheat up and separate the wheat from the chaff. He is not doing that. Um, he is uh, likely in a cave. He is in a hidden enclosed space. We know he's hiding as he's threshing wheat, which was very uncommon. And he's doing that, as probably all of the folks around him did, because of the Midianites, right? If they see what I'm doing, they're going to come in and take all of my stuff. So in that moment, with Gideon trembling in fear, hiding out, this angel of the Lord, boom, appears before him, magnificent, Judges chapter 6, verse 12, and this angel of the Lord says to Gideon, quote, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, right? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Those are the first things we hear said to this guy Gideon in the story. And Gideon has got to be thinking, you talking to me? Mighty warrior. Is there something? Who are you? What? I am not a warrior. I am not a mighty warrior. I'm just a guy trying to survive. I'm trying to pay the bills here, man. I'm trying trying to just protect my stuff so it doesn't get stolen. And so here's what happens next. I find this very interesting. And not only that this is the things that Gideon says, but I find it interesting that God chooses to record this for us forever in the Bible because Gideon is going to... I think you could say debate the angel, discuss, 
argue with the angel. He's definitely pushing back on this amazing angelic being. Um, He says, first off, to the angel visitor, you're telling me that God is with us. It doesn't look like God is with us. There is abundant evidence to the contrary. It would seem God has abandoned us. So he says in Judges 6.13, If the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? You may not have asked that out loud, but I am sure some of us have asked that question. If I'm his child, if I'm his disciple, if the Lord is with us, why did this car accident happen? Why is my son in jail? Why did I get this diagnosis at the doctor's office? Why are the creditors coming after me? If the Lord is, it doesn't look like the Lord is with me right now. That's his question. It it really doesn't look like that. Um, So Gideon, in essence, challenges the angel with this question. I mean, it's really a good cross-examined question. You're telling me God is with us. It doesn't look like God is with us. Um, Look at how much suffering is going on here. So secondly, he debates this angel's almost comical declaration that he, Gideon, is a mighty warrior. He says in verses 14 and 15, well, it says, let's go back to this. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I love that. Go in the strength you have and save the entire country out of Midian's hand. Take the ring, go into Mordor, and destroy. I mean, it's just an impossible task asked of this uh, biblical hobbit, if you will. But Lord, Gideon says, so he pushes back, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And by the way, you could start with that tribe of Manasseh, not exactly Judah, not exactly Benjamin, it's it's tribe of Manasseh, and my clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my family. So again, this is him telling his story here of why he is not the good candidate to be the hero of the story. Now the first assignment, and we sometimes forget about this in the story of Gideon, The first assignment that Gideon is given is an alarmingly personal assignment. It is a family matter. He is supposed to destroy these pagan altars, right, that are nearby, demolish those. But here's the catch. Those pagan altars were constructed by his dad, all right? So it's not like, go over here and sneak into this Midianite village and destroy their... No, it's destroy your dad's worship centers that he's built. An Asherah pole and an altar to Baal. He is supposed to destroy those. He does it, but again, not exactly in the way a mighty warrior would do it. He does it under cover of darkness. He does it in a sneaky sort of way, but he gets the job done. 
It gets the mission accomplished. Judges 6, 27, Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was, we're not even talking about Midian yet, because he was afraid, verse 27, of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather in the daytime. And I appreciate, as I always do, the honesty of the Bible. It doesn't tell you there is some strategic purpose. This is not a, uh, you know, clandestine night operation. There's, there's like some military. No, it's, he was scared. Let's do this at night. A, it will be easier. B, I mean, I'm just thinking here, maybe this is not what's going on at all, but B, maybe my family won't know it was me that did it. I don't know. But he does it at night because the Bible says he was afraid. All right, so he's being called to confront these dark hordes of Midian, and he's afraid to even confront his family. Now, he is hearing a direct message from God, however, through this angel, and he's still not on board with the bigger mission. Gideon is still not on board with leading Israel against Midian. He needs a little extra. He needs a little push here. So you remember this deal he makes. He, he tells the Lord essentially, look, here's a fleece of wool, okay, like a throw rug or something. Here's this fleece of wool. Um, tell you what, if the fleece is wet tomorrow, I'll just lay it out here on the ground outside my tent. If it is wet tomorrow and when I wake up and all of the ground around it is dry, then I will take this as a confirmation that yes, this is really the mission you want me to do. And you remember probably he lays the fleece out and he goes to bed and he gets up in the morning and that thing is sopping wet and all of the ground is as dry as the, as the soil is in Texas right now. So he's like, okay, I still need a little extra, right? He's still not convinced. Uh, he flips it. He's like, well, let's, let's have the the ground, maybe this is just kind of a meteorolog- uh, environmental meteorological thing and whatever. So let's just say, let's do this one more time. Like, let's make the fleece dry tomorrow and the ground needs to be soaking wet. And that's exactly, you remember, that's exactly what happens. It turns out that way. Um, so he begins then, he's like, okay, this oh, good enough for me. So he begins to recruit the army. And I think he has some pretty successful uh, recruiting going on because he has uh, in qu- pretty quick order, thirty-five or 32,000 rather men at his disposal after his preliminary recruitment. The problem, of course, is Midian, we're told, has 135,000 men. So we got four to one odds, very underdoggy kind of stuff going on, four to one odds. Uh, and these are not great odds you would think of. And so then with this new army, Gideon, or rather God, has this surprise for the Savior he's called out. God says to Gideon, when this army shows up, they're all gathering there. Uh, They've got this camp now. God says to him, we've got to do something, Gideon, about the army. And I can just almost hear Gideon's reaction like, yeah, we've got to do something. We we don't have nearly enough guys. And God, no, 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 no. You have too many. (laughs) We've got these four to one odds are not good enough for me, God. I I want lower worse odds, so to speak. So God tells him, 
And this is probably not a great idea from a military strategy strategy perspective. God says, I want you to announce to all of your soldiers that anyone who is afraid, remember, he was afraid, okay? Um, Anyone who is afraid can go home. No questions asked, uh, no penalties, no fines. You can just go home. You know, if they had said that, if Eisenhower had issued that order uh, the night before the D-Day invasion, um, I don't know how many guys would have gotten on those boats and headed for Omaha Beach. I don't know. Um, I, if I'm scared, I can go home. Of course I'm scared. I'm out of here. Um, so Gideon tells his armor, whoever wants to leave can go home. Almost before, <laughs> almost before he finishes uh, giving that information, 22,000 guys leave. And they just head for the doors. It's like, uh, the buzzer at the end of the fourth quarter of the basketball game, everybody, the bleachers are, are clearing out. The army is leaving camp. Uh, so now the army of Israel has been reduced down to about 10,000 soldiers. So now we're down to about 13 to 1 odds, okay, Israel versus Midian. And God tells him, no, you've still got too many soldiers. Um, send them all down to the creek. You remember this part of the story? Send them to the creek to get a drink of water. Um, the guys who, who, who scooped up the water in their hands and lapped it like a dog were in. The ones who got down on their knees and put their heads into the water, they're out. Now, <clears throat> I have heard many attempts to explain this, and it's always... I enjoy the explanations, I really do, because there's, there's often an attempt to talk about why this makes Sense why this is kind of like a Navy SEAL selection process, like like you know those guys that were picking it up and then lapping it. Th- those they're more alert. Um, they're going to be able, so they're kind of probably going to be better candidates for for soldiering. That that's not what's going on at all. And the Bible tells us that's not what's going on. So we just need to sometimes just leave the text the way it is. The Bible tells us that this experiment is not designed to strengthen the army. The Bible tells us this experiment is designed to weaken the army. That's why God did it. Um, And so after drinking the water, after this project, only 300 soldiers are left, so we now have 450 to 1 odds. This is the group that's going to go into battle. Um, So here's the thing, and like I said, the text tells us this, God wanted an underdog. He wanted there to be no doubt that it was not by their power that Midian was going to be expelled from the region. Judges chapter 7, verse 2. Here's what the Lord says. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. Your army is too big. In order that Israel... So here's the reason. It's not a military reason, okay? God says, In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. I want this to be so clear after this battle that it's me, that it's your God who has saved you. It's not you. That's why we're sending all of these men home. So that night... And this is kind of an interesting part of the story. Gideon and his buddy Para or Pura, they kind of sneak down 
right up next to this massive encampment of Midianite soldiers. And they are just in the, you know, the brushes or the, the brush or the bushes just outside this Midianite camp. And they overhear a conversation. A guy has woken up from a bad dream. And so he's talking to his buddy. And he says, I got to tell you about the most bizarre nightmare I just had. And his buddy's like, oh, tell me, tell me. I want to hear about this. <laughs> the, night, the nightmare is, it's, it's kind of funny, honestly. So his nightmare he saw a loaf of bread, a loaf of barley bread, and it was rolling down the hillside toward the camp. And this, this tumbling loaf of bread reaches the camp, and it just demolishes everything. I mean, it just, this truly wonder bread. I mean, this bread just rolls over the entire camp and just crushes the Midianite camp. And this guy's like, I mean, he's like shaking. He's like, he, he is disturbed by this dream that he just had. I mean, he tells the, his friend, he said, I'm really scared about this dream, what it portends, what this is envisioning will happen. And Gideon and Pura, they hear them having this conversation, and it's just kind of a confirmation to them, this, this is ours. God is at work in this situation. And so he prepares his 300 men for the assault, and he divides them into three units, and the soldiers are armed with trumpets and like clay pitchers and torches. You, I remember this from, from uh, probably flannel graph days when I was little. But uh, so a, a, a torch, a pitcher, and a trumpet. Um, what you say? No weapons? No. There, there were no weapons. They, they did not, unless the torch, you know, maybe they could, I don't know. There's not really much weaponry for them to use that they're issued. And in the middle of the night, they gather on the hillsides around the Midianite camp, and the Midianites, for the most part, except probably a few of their guards or whatever, they're fast asleep. And Gideon's men surround this encampment, and in unison, boom, they blast the trumpets. They break the clay pitchers, exposing their torches to the night air, and they shout at the top of their lungs, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So shouting 300 men, shouting 300 men, blasting trumpets, uh, the sudden visual of all of this light on the hills surrounding Midian's camp. And what happens next, the effect of this was quite uh, tremendous. The Midianites started waking up. The hills are lit up with fire, and these, all these men are shouting in this uh, foreign language or at least this heavy accent and they assume what they assume a we're surrounded which i guess was technically true um, but b they they assume they're about to be overrun by this massive israelite force that is taking them by surprise um, when they're kind of getting out of their sleeping bags, right? And so they are terrified. Judges chapter 7, verse 21 says, quote, All the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. So they are shrieking, they are yelling, and they are sprinting all at the same time. And in the chaos of this hasty retreat, uh, the Midianite soldiers, some of them begin to attack each other, assuming uh, in the darkness, it's pitch dark, assuming that the people around them are actually Israelites, 
uh, who have come to destroy them, they actually begin to skirmish amongst themselves and to cut each other down during this very hasty middle-of-the-night escape. Uh, The two Midianite commanders were captured and they were beheaded. So, Gideon is victorious. Scratch that. God is victorious through this underdog. And Gideon learns that night that even the smallest person can change the future. Even the smallest person can change the course of history. So chalk one up for the underdogs. Israel is freed from the oppression of the Midianites. They are also freed from some false ideas that their abilities are important in terms of getting things done without God, that they don't need God. That idea was corrected. They are corrected in their idea that Gideon articulates earlier in the story, God has abandoned us. God doesn't care about us. They can see that, no, he very much does. And they're freed from their idea that they can't do anything because of their size, because of their weakness. They learn, no, God can do all sorts of amazing things through them if they will trust him, if they will say yes to him. And I think that we need the story. I think we need to be reminded that our circumstances need not define us. Talked about this this morning. We are God's children. We are located in Christ. Our abilities, our resources even, need not define us. Um, What defines us is that we are God's. We have His Holy Spirit DNA because of Jesus. That's our identity, and that truly, it changes things. And I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 about this. And you've heard these verses before, but it really shows us that is the thing that matters. Right? Paul tells them, and they felt like underdogs in Rome. I mean, you are in the heart, you're in the belly of the beast. I mean, you talk about ancient world's Mount Doom. There it is. You are in the city of Rome, and you are a disciple of Jesus, by the way, who was assassinated by Rome. And Paul reminds them, no, no, no. You have everything you need and more. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31 If God is for us, and by the way, the evidence of God being for us is pretty hard to argue with. If God is, he'll he'll, he'll put that out for us in just a second. But if God is for us, who can be against us? Look, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things who can bring any charge against those whom god has chosen it is god who justifies who is he that condemns christ jesus who died more than that who was raised to life christ jesus 
location is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So Jesus arguing your case at the right hand of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he continues in verse 37. In all these things, and these are not great things, these are difficult circumstances, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And then Paul continues. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there is nothing that can separate you from the love that God has for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? If, if Christ died for you on the cross, is interceding for you at the right hand of God, who can make accusation against you? Your sins were washed away. You're made right. You're justified by Jesus. And it's an easy, I think, even a natural thing to be shaken by circumstances of life, by the proverbial Midianites that we face. Um, circumstances of life can cause us to be fearful. Family circumstances, financial circumstances, health problems, self-doubt, the kind of those tapes we play inside our own heads of regrets and things that we wish we would have done differently or we wish wouldn't have happened to us. Uh, but if Paul says, <laughs> if you're God's child, that's the thing that matters. That's, that's the game changer. It means that God is for me, that God is for you in a very real and tangible sort of way. The proof is I mean, Jesus on the cross. That's as real, that's as, that's as tangible, those nails going through his hands as you can get. And it means that I'm made right, that you're made right because of Christ Jesus, that I'm not counting on my righteousness. I'm counting on his righteousness. And you know, the evil one does like to remind us of our slip-ups and our failures. Satan, by the way, means adversary. That's what his name means. And so Paul reminds us, that's been handled. Verse 33, who, who can condemn you if God has done all this for you? And so it means that you are capable of facing anything. Anything that life can throw at you. In all these things, and he's listed about everything Paul can think of from demons to swords to famines to unjust accusations, he says, you're, you're more than conqueror in all of that. 
because of Jesus. So here's the thing as we finish. We have a lot in common with Gideon, don't we? Um, We may from time to time feel like the runt of the litter, may not feel like mighty warriors. Uh, We may feel like we are underdogs, and we may be up against some Midianites. We may be up against some situations from time to time that really seem like too much for us to handle. And I think that's when the Lord very gently puts his hand on our shoulder and says, Hey, you're my child. You're a mighty warrior. You may not have this alone, but you're not alone. You and I have this together. Let's pray about this and we'll sing in just a moment. God, thank you for reminding us of who we are in Jesus. Thank you for reminding us of what has been done for us on the cross. Thank you for reminding us that Jesus is our advocate. Jesus, your son, is the one arguing our case before you. Thank you for reminding us that there are no accusations, there is no basis for accusations before your holy throne because we wear the righteousness of Jesus. Thank you for reminding us tonight that it's not based on our resources, on our ingenuity, on our strength, on our money, on, it, on our health situation. It's not based on any of that, that we have hope, that we have faith. But it's, it's purely based on what Jesus has done for us on the cross and through his resurrection. Thank you for highlighting tonight the story of a guy named Gideon who was against impossible odds. And if we're to take what he says, Lord, at face value, he wasn't all that impressive. He didn't think of himself as being all that impressive. But yet you called him yours. You raised him up. And you did amazing things through his life. And I pray, God, that you will remind us that you can do the same thing in our lives, in the life of this church, in those that we call brothers and sisters all around the world. You're still God, and we are still your children. And we pray this in the name of our mighty Savior, our mighty hero, Jesus. Amen. Let's be standing and let's worship together.